you revisited the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden. On this episode, with Ursula Goodenough, entitled Religious Naturalist, we are joined by the author of the 1997 Oxford classic, The Sacred Depths of Nature, a book where Ursula shares the poetry, power, and passion of her vision of nature, which has been updated and reissued. But first, Nature Revisited would like to welcome a new sponsor for the podcast, Prairie Restorations from Princeton, Minnesota. Prairie Restorations is excited to sponsor today's episode of Nature Revisited. Founded in 1977 as one of the first native garden centers in the country, Prairie Restorations has grown and expanded the diversity of our native plants and services. Our mission is to produce and provide the most ecologically appropriate seeds, plants, products, and services to restore and manage native plant communities. Shop our online garden center and receive 10% off your order when you use promo code Nature Revisited. Be the change. Be a native gardener and help restore critical native habitat. Visit prairieresto.com to shop the highest quality native seeds and plants. That's prairieresto.com. Again, that's prairieresto.com. Now back to your show. I'm joined by Ursula Goodenough, the author of the incredibly insightful book, The Sacred Depths of Nature. Welcome, Ursula. It is a pleasure to have you on Nature Revisited. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with maybe the earlier years. What role did nature have in your early life? Well, I was raised in the suburbs of New Haven, Connecticut, so there were occasional trips to the woods, but mostly it was my backyard where I dug around and had a little garden, and I also had a cat who had lots of kittens, and I had tropical fish. So I was interested, but of course, in those days, in the 40s, there was no television. There was nothing much else to do except play outside. When I was around nine, my family bought a little cabin next to the Long Island Sound, and so we spent summers there and springs and falls. But my real encounter with wilderness came when my junior year in high school, I went to a boarding school in Colorado where we took, you know, hikes and uh, weekly camping trips and I climbed mountains and I really discovered what the natural world was like in its pristine beauty. I think that's what has stayed with me the most. You're a biologist. When did you first understand or discover that the sacred was or is connected to science? Well, you first have to get me to be a scientist. I took my first science course as a sophomore in college, so I really had no idea how the world worked until I took that course. But once I took it, I was intrigued and fascinated and loved it. Became a biology major in college, which meant I had to take chemistry courses and physics courses and so on. And so that was when I learned how the world worked and how scientists could be 
engaged in asking questions along that axis. So then went to grad school and did the usual thing of getting a faculty position and teaching this stuff and doing science in the lab and training students and all the things that one does as a scientist. And the concept that this was a sacred activity and using words like religious and spiritual just didn't cross my mind. It just wasn't in my vocabulary or my mindset to think about it that way. And so that didn't really start happening until the late 80s when I went to a conference that was put on by a group called the Institute on Religion in an Age of Science. There I met a philosopher named Loyal Rue, who had just written a book called Amythia, where he talked about the fact that our global cultures were moving away from the standard myths of the traditional religions, but did not have anything really to replace it. And he first suggested, to me anyway, that what we understood about the natural world, based on our scientific inquiry, was in fact a sacred book of knowledge, if you will. So I started considering that and talking to people that I'd never talked to before, to theologians and philosophers and folks like that, and became intrigued by this notion that we did have a new sacred text in front of us and that I knew a lot about the language and the concepts that were in there. And that led to my writing the first edition of The Sacred Depths of Nature, which was published in 1998. And once that was published, then I sort of entered a new life. So what led you to revise your book, The Sacred Depths of Nature? Well, several reasons. One was that some of the science, not much of it, but some of it had been replaced by deeper and more interesting understandings, and so I wanted to uh, include those. But during the 25 years between the publication of the first book, as I said, I had all sorts of meetups with people. I wrote articles for journals. I was interviewed and so on, and all of that led me to lots of additional understandings about how this orientation could be expressed and experienced. So I had a lot of new things to say and realized that I really should revise the book and include those. You refer to yourself as a religious naturalist. Can you describe and define what religious naturalism is and just how you came to it? Well, how I came to it was kind of what I was describing before in terms of a definition, since that's what people want. We can start with naturalist. Probably most of your listeners are naturalists in the sense that they love nature and they love how it works and they orient themselves within nature and would not have any problem calling themselves naturalists. I take the concept of naturalist and move it a little bit deeper to describe a person who not only loves the beauty and the experience of nature, but is also interested in how nature works, how life came to be, how the planet and the cosmos came to be, and so on. In other words, someone who also takes in the understandings of nature that we've gleaned via scientific inquiry, and a person who holds all of that, both the love and the beauty part and the understanding part, is someone that I would call a naturalist. 
a religious naturalist holds that full stop, but also goes on to explore its religious potentials. So now we have to get into what I mean by religious. And I've come to think of religious as an activity that begins with a story. So if you think of the traditions, including the indigenous ones and every other one that's ever been, and there have been thousands of them, they all have some sort of a story about how the world came to be, how humans came to be, what happens after we die, and so on. Those stories then serve as the anchor for one's religious orientation. So in the case of religious naturalism, the story would be what uh, Loyal Rue called, and I've adopted, everybody's story, because our deep understanding of nature is an understanding that applies to every human and every creature on the planet. So if you take everybody's story as the anchor, then for me, a religious response to that story takes three different directions. The first is that one interprets that story. What does the story tell me about the meaning of life? Why is there anything at all rather than nothing? Sort of existential, philosophical kinds of questions that are raised by the story. And in the traditions, of course, these questions are given answers. There's something rather than nothing because God created or the great spirit created or however the narrative goes. In the case of everybody's story, those answers are not baked in. They are to be found and explored and shared and celebrated. So it's a different kind of interpretive project. The second is the spiritual, which I think of as internal, inward responses to a story. In the case of everybody's story, our understandings of the natural world, the spiritual responses include reverence and gratitude and humility and joy. And the third is the outward responses, the moral responses, the ethical responses, which are, of course, embedded in all of the traditional religious stories as well. How do I behave? How do I treat others? What is good? What is bad? In the case of everybody's story, the moral parameter includes not only how humans relate to one another, which is the usual case for at least the monotheisms, but also how humans interact with the rest of nature that we call eco-morality. So in eco-morality, one is also concerned about right relations with the rest of the world. So why do we separate science from the sacred, and why are they inseparable? Well, science, as I think of it, is is an activity. <laughs> uh, it's it's a mode of asking questions of the natural world, and the natural world in our time includes not only other creatures in the planet and the cosmos, it also includes our cultures, our social institutions. So we have social sciences, we have natural sciences. And in all cases, the idea is to take what is known and explore it to deepen those understandings, to expand them, to connect them with one another. So 
doing science, although most people think of it as something that just scientists do, is in fact something that all humans do. We all ask questions as to how things are and construct hypotheses and see whether they hold it to fit a, a given situation. Kids do this all the time, too. So science is a way of asking questions. So your question really, I think, refers to the fact that why is it that our scientific understandings of nature have not been thought of as some of the substrates for a sacred orientation. These understandings that scientists have brought to us in the last many hundreds of years, although there were scientists way back in time as well, these understandings have usually been used as substrates for technology. So technology is different from science in that it takes scientific understandings and asks, well, what can we make? So this making of things based on scientific knowledge has been going on forever. And making things became so hooked up with scientific inquiry that, to my mind, it kind of polluted what we were understanding, at least entrapped it and entrained it into technological applications. So the notion that our scientific understandings have spiritual and moral dimensions is more recent. The current group of us that call ourselves religious naturalists are really trying to uh, take this home and have it be an orientation that everybody explores. When did nature and science first start showing you signs of the spiritual, the religious, and the sacred? It was a gradual process. There was no epiphany. I just, starting with my introduction to Loyal Rue's work in the late 80s, I just kept thinking about it and reading about it and talking to people, experiencing it in my own meditative life, and came to see that this was very rich and very powerful. Does there have to be a human reference point in order for something to be sacred? And what makes something or nature sacred? There are many versions of this. The one that makes the most sense to me is that when humans have been asked, you know, what is most important, they usually come sooner or later to, to life. You know, that life is important, that living is important. And living, of course, does not occur on its own. It occurs in the context of ecosystems and therefore of the planetary matrix. So life is inextricably involved in, embedded in, the rest of the natural world. And I would say if life is sacred, then the whole shebang is sacred as to whether humans are the only ones who make this call. Yeah, probably because we're the only ones who have language. So we have a name like sacred for what we feel. Now there are reports that I'm sure are true of the chimpanzees that Jane Goodall tells us about who stand in awe when they reach a waterfall and gaze at it in astonishment. So it's not to say that these kinds of spiritual experiences are restricted to humans, but we're certainly the only ones who have names for it. Why is it important to understand 
and origin of life when it comes to understanding the sacred in nature? Well, most religious narratives do have an account about how life started, how the world started, how things started. Genesis 1, beginning of the New Testament, all of the indigenous traditions all have an account of the beginnings. Beginnings accounts usually have some sort of supernatural, beyond-the-earth kinds of beings who create the life that we know of. So an origin story is always in everybody's story to a religious naturalist. The origin of life is therefore something that we're very curious about. If you don't invoke a God creating life and instead need to have it arise within the planetary matrix about three and a half billion years ago, you have to go to biochemistry, to chemistry itself, to figure out how something alive might have arisen. There are many versions of this. All of them are hypotheses, probably will always be hypotheses, because the original life form, by definition, evolved into present-day life forms. So we will probably never know what the first one was like. But that doesn't matter. I think that I spend a lot of time on the origin of life in my book because it tells us in the most simplified way what life entails, what involves to be alive in terms of being a self, in terms of self-protecting, self-maintaining, self-reproducing. So it's a very important milestone in everybody's story that I think we all are blessed to think about. What is planetary ethics? Well, in the, in the beginning of the book uh, and in the first edition as well, I, I talk about the need for a planetary ethic. What I mean by that is that many of the issues now facing us are planetary in nature. My thinking that goes back again to Loyal Rue's original idea is that in order to fix these problems and to generate a sustainable matrix for future generations, it's very important that we all start out with the same understandings as to how the natural world works, then make our decisions based on that shared set of understandings. So were that to happen, then what would emerge would be something that we could call a planetary ethic. In adopting a planetary ethic, by no means do I mean that culture-specific traditions, ethnic traditions need to be scrubbed or thrown away. These are all very important. They're all part of nature. They're part of our culture. They're part of who we are. So what I'm suggesting is that things that need to be fixed of a planetary nature need a planetary ethic. So why is language, and that includes stories and myths, why is language so important in understanding our place in the world? Because that's who we are. <laughs> we are language-based critters. All living beings have some forms of communication, or most of them do. Even bacteria communicate with one another. So communication is universal. 
we have a particular form of communication, which is called symbolic language, which operates in a particular way. Symbols refer to other things besides themselves. We are set up to do this. A two-year-old is language ready and learns a language from her or his culture at that point. This language then also is the basis for constructing what we call our ourselves or our I self. Language also is the basis for the major way that we think, which is that we think in narratives, we think in stories, we think in what happened next and what happened before. To have a story is to be human. To think in stories is to be human. And we seek stories that make sense of our lives, existential stories that tell us about our larger place in the cosmos. So what do you think we can learn, and maybe should learn, from indigenous cultures when it comes to our relationship with nature and the sacred? Well, we can learn a lot, and we're learning a lot. Their stories turn out, perhaps because of the fact that they lived within nature. That was what they experienced, and therefore their relationship to nature and with nature was central to their being and therefore central to their religious stories. And, of course, indigenous, we often think in terms of American Indians, but, of course, indigenous traditions and nature-based traditions are everywhere throughout present and throughout human history. Think of the pagan traditions in Europe. Uh, think of the Maori traditions in New Zealand. One can even say that the monotheisms, with their focus on the hereafter and what's coming next in the earth as sort of some sort of mortal coil that one sheds, that perspective is not at all found in the East Asian religions either, in Hinduism or Buddhism or Confucianism and so on, and certainly not Shinto, which is completely nature-based. The monotheisms have been particularly egregious in not sharing our natural embeddedness, although folks have gone through the Bible and the Quran and have found passages that are very beautiful along those lines. But going back to your original questions, what we call indigenous writ large throughout the world, where the peoples are already living in nature and not on farms or in cities, nature is the obvious source for their stories. All right. Talk about how death is the price paid for human-style consciousness and the experience of the sacred. When multicellular organisms started showing up, when the animal lineage evolved, the animal lineage has two kinds of tissues. One is what we call the soma, the body, all of the arms and legs and organs and everything. So that's our somatic part. And then we also have a germ part, our ovaries and testes, that make the gametes that combine to make the next generation of somas, all of which also have germ lines with eggs and sperm and so on. And that's how we continue through time, is to have a soma and a germ line. And once you segregate the part of being alive, which is to reproduce, once you segregate that part to the germline, once that becomes its preoccupation and its 
purpose, then the soma becomes basically an a better of the germline. The soma is what's involved in getting food and finding mates and shelter uh, such that the germline can do its thing. So the soma, once it has accomplished what it set out to do, um, there's no reason to have it keep going. And so in all animals, the soma dies. Part then about the brain has to do with the fact that one of the parts of the soma in animals is, of course, the brain. And in humans, the brain is the seat of our religious sensibilities, our cognitive understandings of our religious experience, as well as the emotional part of our experience, which also is very tied up with the brain's interactions with the rest of the body, with the gut, with hormones, and so on. So all of that dies, but if we didn't have this split, and therefore we didn't have the freedom to evolve, have all sorts of experiences that we call religious, death is then that which makes brains and hence spiritual experience possible. The chapter in your book that really illustrated for me religious naturalism was the chapter called Ode to a Lichen. The lichens are wonderful creatures. Each lichen is an organism, but it's made up of three different kinds of organisms that collaborate to produce a new organism, so that requires a little bit of thinking, but it really makes sense once you do that. So the three kinds of organisms are filamentous fungi and green algae, and then bacteria themselves, which inhabit the lichen and confer properties on it. So the lichen is this three-way symbiosis they are incredibly successful. If I look out the window now, all of my trees are completely slathered with lichens. They are highly indestructible. They can dry out completely and come back to life. Nobody is really very interested in them because they're not very good for food or for shelter or making anything. They just are. Their just areness is to me a sort of a sacred concept that you don't have to be useful for any technology in order to be valid citizens of, of the planet. They also grow very slowly. They're not in any hurry if the environmental situation is disruptive. They just hunker down and wait till things get better. What I conclude is that the lichens give us a model for critters who can live sustainably, not be in any hurry, not try to overtake other critters in the environment, but just are, and that they would be good models for thinking about how we might envisage our future. So, where else, besides your book, can someone learn more about religious naturalism? So, about seven years ago, a lawyer in Louisiana <laughs> set up a 501c3, a nonprofit group, called the Religious Naturalist Association. 
Okay, so we call think of ourselves as an association of all people who are interested in this orientation, even though they might call themselves something different. Some call themselves spiritual naturalists. Some call themselves ATO pagans. I mean, there's lots of words. Humans are very good at thinking up names for themselves. The idea was to have sort of a central online warehouse for all the people who are exploring these ideas. And so we have this association, if anybody, it's religious-naturalist-association.org, but it should come up with a little bit of searching. And there we are dedicated to presenting available books, websites, and so on from people past and present who have been writing and thinking about how this all might come together. So that would be the resource that I would recommend. So finally, what are some of your concerns moving forward? And what do you hope people will take with them after reading your book? My hope is that there will emerge a planetary ethic that corrects these trajectories and puts us on sustainable courses. The religious naturalist orientation will inform that ethic because it tells us who we are and how we got here and how we are all deeply interconnected, we're all deeply interrelated, and we've got to figure out how to take care of the place. With the constant barrage of other things to think about in American culture, with television and Internet and so on, it's my sense that a lot of people just don't have time for it. <laughs> they're too busy thinking about everything else they're supposed to be thinking about, and it's just sort of receded into the background. And what I hope is that perhaps now that there are so many people who are reconnecting with the natural world, walking in the woods and taking vacations in ecologically wonderful places rather than going to Reno or something, that this natural sense of the sacred will start to become more common in the United States and, and the world. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ursula Goodenough and that you get the chance to read her amazing book, The Sacred Depths of Nature. Nature Revisited would like to thank Prairie Restorations for joining us as a new sponsor for the podcast. And I hope you will visit their website for your garden and restoration needs. I hope you will share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or on our website, NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, Productions.com. The music for this episode is Bruce Hornsby and the Range, the way it is. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are 
nature. <laughs>